and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Taja Lindley is an artist, activist, healer, writer, consultant, and so much more, who is based in New York City. Her mixed-media installation, Remembering is the Responsibility of the Living, is on view until July 31st, 2019 at the Carver Museum and Cultural Center here in Austin. I caught up with Taja recently when she was in Austin for the Fusebox Festival, where she facilitated her participatory performance ritual, The Bag Lady Manifesta, in conjunction with her Carver Museum show. In the interview, we talk about many things, including her origins as an activist and artist, learning and performing burlesque, and her current artist and residence position with the New York City Department of Health. Here is Taja. Well, thanks, Taja, for being on my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because um, we're looking at each other and no one's going to be looking at us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that's a good thing about not shooting video because some people that have podcasts have video because I feel like it just makes you feel more self-conscious, you know? I want people to be comfortable. I want to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to worry about how I look, you know? So right. Yeah. Yeah. It, Thank God better. no one's seeing me right now. I don't have my makeup on. Okay, yeah. Well. <laughs> Well, thanks for being here. You're visiting Austin right now because you just performed during the Fusebox Festival. Yes. And how did that go? Um, It was amazing. It was my first time performing in Austin. Well, actually, that's not true. I performed at the Carver Museum for Phone Home Fest. Yeah, that was a different kind of performance. Yeah, it was a group MC situation, um, which we can talk a little bit more about later. But it was my first time doing my solo work in Austin, Mm -hmm. um, sharing the Bag Lady Manifesta here. And somewhat connected to your exhibition at the Carver. Yeah, connected to my exhibition at the Carver. Um, So I was here in March for about 10 days to put up that exhibition, Remembering Mm -hmm. It's Responsibility of the Living. And then I came back this month, April, for about eight days to put up um, the Bag Lady Manifesta. So it was great. I had a good first time at Fusebox. Hopefully it won't be the last time I'm a part of the festival or the Mm -hmm. last time that I get to perform in Austin. I know you've done that performance quite often, right? Quite a few times. Yeah, it's probably, you know, one of my pieces that I've performed the most. Um, One of the precursor performances that I've done, the Saint Eulogy, a ritual for remembering, which is now a 
film, but it started as a performance. It's a powerful film. Thank it's you. Really, I recommend people watch it. It's yes, very please moving. do. And I made it a film because I wanted people to experience the work who I didn't have a chance to perform in front of live. Yeah. So like the internet, there's that thing where you can reach people that you've never met and seen, yeah. <sighs> and so. The film was for that. But when it was a live performance, I performed that like several dozen times. I don't even know if I can keep count. I know it's definitely more than 30, mm-hmm. um, maybe less than 50. Uh, so the Bag Lady Manifesto, I'm not quite in the 30s yet yeah. <laughs> with number of times performed. But it's a, you know, the Bag Lady Manifesto is a full evening length experience. And I've performed that of quite a few times throughout the nation. I've been on a nationwide tour. So yeah. I've been to Tulsa, Oklahoma, Philadelphia, uh, Cambridge, slash Boston. People say it's different. Just, <laughs> I think it's the same. Um, Memphis, Seattle, Minneapolis. Wow. I'll be in Houston in the fall. So, yeah, I've been able to really travel with this work. That's exciting. Yeah. It's been interesting performing it in front of different audiences. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's a participatory piece and my work is um, ritual performance. So part of my medium in performance is spirit. So the people who come create the performance as well. Like it's, I call it a one woman show. So people understand very shorthand, like, oh, yeah, she's performing by herself. But really, I'm facilitating a whole experience that includes all of us. Yeah, you're not passively sitting there. As no, an I'm member, unless you really want to be. <laughs> yeah. And there is a moment where people get to do that. It's a very short moment in the beginning of the work. But I say in the piece, like I didn't come to do all the work. Like I'm not just an object for consumption. I feel like some artwork, art spaces kind of become that. Like let me come and look at the thing or look at the body, look at the object. Yeah. Um, and just kind of sit back and talk about it. And, you know, my work makes people uncomfortable because you don't get to do that. Um, I'm looking directly at people. The lights are up. We can all see each other. I call on people to speak. And so we are all in it together. Um, And that's one of the takeaways of the work. Like, I don't want people to be just sitting there and like, yeah, you know, and these issues are important to talk about. But like, what, what are we going to do? So the performance space becomes an environment for us to activate um, uh, our bodies and ourselves like in that moment in space and hopefully beyond you know, yeah. that it becomes kind of the microcosm for what we can be doing afterwards. Because you really, in a lot of your work, it seems like you're trying to trigger something in someone to make them take action or not forget or all kinds of things that you want to facilitate for them or push them to or make them think about something. Yeah, exactly. It's so I identify as an activist. Um, I think there are many different definitions for that word, but ultimately I think that identity means that I have a inclination or a responsibility to move people to action, mm. like activists, like get people to activate yeah. in some sort of way. So I want people to do something after they see my work. I want them to not only feel, I want them to do something. Um, and there's several kind of call to actions. The most obvious one is to remember. I want people to remember both what is happening in their individual lives, um, personal histories, community histories, family histories, and then also like our collective consciousness, like our collective memory. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of what I've described about the work is that 
So for folks who may be unfamiliar, you know, part of the entryway into the conversation around remembering is about the abandoned histories and discarded histories of the United States, specifically um, state-sanctioned violence against Black people. So, you know, I want people to consider why is it that we don't know all of the names or remember all of the people who have um, been victims of police violence or state sanctioned violence? Why don't we have everyone's name lifted up in the media? Why um, is everyone who's ever been impacted not written into the history books? Like, you know, what is that about? Yeah. Um, or why do we focus on one person and not kind of like I think you said in another, another interview, look at the big picture of kind of the whole yeah. movement or the whole problem or the whole kind of like what's right. happening here. Systemic racism. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and it'll be easier for me to talk about this if I give a little bit of background about how I arrived into the work. Yeah, um, please. So, you know, I was working with some young women in a program at Project Rise in New York City. Um, And that program provides support for young people around the ages like 16 to 23 who didn't graduate from high school, but want to complete an high school equivalency exam. So like Mm -hmm. a GED. So they're inside of this program. And I was contracted to come in and teach a class that was not related to their testing, right? So they're in classes that have to do with how to pass this exam. Uh, And my class was sort of like an elective and it was focused on like social justice, self-care, feminism. There was a broad range of topics. And around the time I was teaching the class, it was fall of 2014. They had just come back from Thanksgiving break and anyone who remembers the time of like November 2014, like this is when the police officers responsible for the deaths of Eric Garner and Michael Brown, like they were not indicted. People were inconsistent and spontaneous protests like nationwide, including New York, because Eric Garner, you know, he was killed in Staten Island. So that's like our own backyard. So people were shutting down streets, highways, doing die-ins and um, taking over lots of different public spaces in ways that made travel inconvenient for folks in New York City. So New York is very pedestrian. We're taking the train. We're walking. We're, you know, out and about in that kind of way. Some people drive, obviously, but it was very easy to notice how the city was being uh, interrupted by protest. And I knew that my students weren't going to have a space to process inside of their other classes. So we made space inside of our class to talk. Mm. Um, and I brought in all kinds of, what do you call it? Like, uh, like material and information that gave us facts or um, different eyewitness accounts. So like news articles that I could find, anything printed online that would give my students some context for like what happened. So we did this like super zoom in micro, like look at the play by play minute by minute for both of these men, um, what happened to them, why it happened, who saw what, when, where and why. And we had a debate in class about, you know, what should have happened, what could have been done differently mm-hmm. to have prevented uh, these men from having their lives taken. And all of this to put in context, like, hey, guys, this is why <laughs> our city has been shut down. Like people are really angry and upset about this. Right. So people are on all sides of the conversation um, from, well, if, 
you know, you're more subdued or behave this way with police, like it will save your life, which I think is in part like an indoctrination that happens in communities that are meant to fear police or fear the state. Like, here is how you need to be so you can make sure that, you know, there's not that one wrong move that can take your life. Stay in line. Yeah. But even then... It's yeah, not guaranteed. No, yeah. It's not guaranteed um, that your life won't be taken. But so there was that kind of conversation. And there was like, well, it doesn't matter what happened. Like, why would you shoot to kill or put someone in a chokehold or like what could have been done differently? People were looking at it from all different angles. And so around this time, um, Twitter was just a really reliable source of information because the media, especially for Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown's life was taken, um, it was just really hard to get the facts, you know, things were getting filtered through the media in a way to have us believe that protesters were always being aggressive or antagonistic. And I had friends, colleagues, acquaintances, people who are in movement work, who I follow, I was following them on Twitter. And it's like, actually, there's a counter narrative here where people are like really reporting live through their Twitter feed about what is happening on the ground. And so I remember just being on Twitter, just following what was happening? What's going on? And I came across this list of names from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And it was like a very simple screenshot of like a Word document of the first and last names of unarmed black people killed by the police from 1999 Amadou Diallo until the list was created in 2014. And it included the year their life was taken and the city and state in which it happened. And so that was one of the materials I brought into the class. And so I let everyone have their debate, let everyone have their conversation, you know, popular education approach. I create a space for them to all kind of figure it out. And near the end of class, I passed around this list and I asked my students, I said, you know, what do you think about this list? What what comes to mind when you, you know, look at this and I explained who the names were and where I got the list from. And their responses were you know, oh, I don't know these names. Wow, this is happening everywhere. Um, Why didn't I hear about this? This has been going on for a long time. And I had to contextualize. I'm like, 1999 is not when (laughs) this started, you know? Um, But that's when I think they understood systemic racism. Like we were able to take a zoom out. Like we got into the nitty gritty details about these two cases and we debated it and went back and forth. But in the zooming out, we began to see kind of the larger problem. And so that that comment that they made about like, oh, why don't I know all these names? Why haven't mm. I heard about this? That was my turning point. You know, I was working with trash bags and thinking about um, the bag lady as a cautionary tale, Erica Badu's version, you know, can't catch a bus, can't keep a man because you are holding on to baggage that doesn't serve you. And in that moment with those students, I was like, oh, actually, I think the bag lady's on to something. There are things that we need to remember. There are things that we need to hold on to because there are people in histories that get treated as if they're disposable and they are not. And so disposability, meaning like the fact that we can forget that uh, these histories can be erased, not acknowledged or faced, that it takes the concerted effort (laughs) of going on Twitter or creating a specific space for students, you know, when I know they have no other space, like it requires going out of the way in order to get the information and to share it. And so I'm just really concerned about, yeah, memory, you know, what we choose to remember, what we choose to let go of, 
who gets remembered and how. Um, and our country's been in debates about this for centuries. Like a few years ago, people were debating monuments, you know, that celebrated the Confederacy. And why do these histories get to be lifted up? Why does this person get to be um, just codified in our memory in a particular kind of way? What about these other histories that we're not grappling with? And so there's just this larger question um, that I start to think about and yeah, just really wanting people to grapple with the political project of memory in the United States and how that's connected to our personal relationship to memory and remembering. Everything that you're saying makes me wonder kind of like where this all started for you in your life, like this, your oh, yeah. <laughs> activism or your artistic side or whatever. I mean, your drive, your passion, mm-hmm. your curiosity, your willingness to do all this work, you know, like I don't feel like everyone wants to do the work, right? Right. You know? So it's like, why do you want to do the work? I mean, where did this all start? Well, How far um, back can we go? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was born on July 8th and <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that makes me a cancer. Okay. And, um, I don't know how many cancer listeners you have people who have a cancer son, but we are known for holding on to things. Mm. We are known for holding on to the past in particular and it can manifest as grudges. <laughs> it can manifest as weaponizing the past, mm. um, to make people, you know, feel bad about things that they've done to us because we just carry this like memory. And, you know, the bag lady is kind of like how I'm able to put that side of me to good use. Hmm. I am the person in my family who names the elephant in the room. I'm the person in my family who harps on the things that happened in the past. Like my family has told me, you know, they have gotten really annoyed. <laughs> like, oh, Tasha, you're going to bring that up again? Like, when are you going to get over it? And I'm just like, what's to get over? Like, this is a part of my life and my history, specifically thinking about childhood trauma, mm. things that um, I experienced that were really hard and I've been grappling with in my adulthood um, because it has shaped my relationships with other people, my ability to be vulnerable and loving and self-expressed in love like it still sits with me like in my body um Mm. and I was unable to let it go because it had not been addressed at the time that my family was confronting me you know I've gone to family therapy and things like that but you know hadn't been acknowledged hadn't been like grappled with no apology no accountability and it just Um, It was hard for me to move past uh, the things that happened in my childhood because they weren't acknowledged or remembered. And so this labor of remembering is really ingrained in me like as a person. And I can't allow for something that has happened that is impacting interactions to go like unacknowledged. And sometimes I do that if, even if it has nothing to do with me, yeah. <laughs> like I'm the person in my family or even in past jobs that I've had, like I will state the uncomfortable truth, the thing that we're not naming. And so this is just a part of my life practice, like my Taja Lindley being and working with my um, director. I also call her my performance doula, um, Tanisha Christie, who is also an artist in her own right. She's also a licensed social worker. So she's 
kind of a therapist. (laughs) And during our time working together on the Bag Lady Manifesto to bring it into some sort of space of completion, she had me consider um, and research shadow self stuff. So that's the part of ourself that we uh, would prefer to be distant from, to be like, that's not me. I didn't do that. That's the exception, not the rule of who I am. Um, There's like these parts of ourselves that maybe surprise us or make us feel ashamed, you know, quote unquote mistakes or quote unquote failures or ways in which we didn't show up as the person that we like to think we are. And the work of grappling with the shadow self is to figure out how to integrate it into your life versus trying to cut it off from you. And so what the bag lady does for me is allows me to integrate a part of myself that I don't necessarily feel shame around, but I know that I've definitely used my really great memory to make people feel bad to, um, yeah, to hurt because I felt hurt. Mm. And so the bag lady gives that part of me purpose. Like I'm able to integrate and acknowledge who I've been and to organize it in such a way that um, it just adds greater value and meaning to my life and the life of other people. So I would say my zodiac sign is part of my origin (laughs) story. The way I move through my family, community, space, um, jobs that I've had is a part of it. And, you know, I feel like there's multiple origin stories to to this work. Yeah. Um, other points would be uh, different programs that I've been a part of. Like I didn't go to college and get a fine arts degree. Um, I went to school thinking actually I'd be a teacher hmm. because I grew up in the South. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia or Metro Atlanta rather. And I just went to a really racist high school. (laughs) It was like my politicization space. It was like my, just the, the, the place where the seeds were sown and planted and grown for me being an activist. So I was already outspoken. I talked back. I don't have a whole lot of respect for authority, you know, ask my mother. (laughs) (laughs) She can tell you, you know, um, so I already had that about me. Uh, but then it, it got purpose and meaning when I was grappling with things that I was witnessing at my school. Um, so my mother moved, we bought a house. Um, so I ended up transferring high schools my sophomore year. So I'm talking about the high school that I graduated from. I was there from 10th grade to 12th grade. Grayson High School in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. It might be very different now, but when I went, it was very white. Mm. Um, there were no people of color on staff except for the Latinx janitors that worked there. There were very few students of color, very few st- black students. And we just noticed different things that were racist. Um, For example, you know, I think the school colors were like blue or green or something like that. And all the black students were like, we don't have school pride. Like, let's show black pride. So we're all going to wear red to school to like on spirit day. And I didn't end up wearing red. I think maybe I didn't have a red outfit or something, whatever. It's low stakes for me. But, you know, solidarity. Yeah. But the folks who did, I believe they got in-house suspension for gang related activity. Mm. 
So there was an assumption made that because a bunch of black students came to school and all read that it had something to do with the gang. So there was that. There was just the debate around the Confederate flag and it represents a history and you're not allowed to be offended by it is what we were told for anyone who kind of had taken issue with it. This is in like late 1990s and the early 2000s. So the only time we were allowed to be offended was when the flag was paired with like some sort of imagery or words that would make it offensive. Like there was a student who came to school with a Confederate flag shirt and on the back there was like some scenery of like black people picking cotton and wow it was like what and that student wasn't suspended they were told to just turn their shirt inside out so it was like the lack of parity in terms of how consequences were doled out to students was very apparent i was very vocal (laughs) um someone drew a confederate flag in January on like one of those like science tables where if you draw with an eraser, it like makes a mark, but you can, you know, wipe it off later. So they drew with their eraser on the science uh, table, a Confederate flag and wrote happy Martin Luther King day. And they understood that the irony was that a lot of black people took issue with the Confederate flag and we had just come back from MLK holiday. And so putting those two things together was a joke for them. They thought it was funny. And I reported them to my teacher who ran it up the chain So I figured, okay, these students are going to get suspended. There are going to be some consequences. I come back to school the next day. They're still there living life like nothing happened. And so I made it my business to talk to an assistant principal. I made an appointment and I sat down and I said, where are the consequences? Where's the accountability? You say we can't be offended unless things are paired in a particular kind of way. I was like, this is an example of that. Why do I still see them in my class? She's like, well, we couldn't figure out who wrote Happy MLK Day because that was the part that was egregious. And I was like, well, let's find out. So I'm going to sit here while we figure it out. And so she called them in one by one and had a conversation with me until we figured out who it was. And so, yeah, so I just became known in high school as like that person. I read like the autobiography of Malcolm X, the miseducation of the Negro. I was reading Elijah Muhammad's work. I was like very pro-black and like yearning for blackness and black framework and scholarship and information to help me understand and make sense of my experiences. I had a teacher, a psychology teacher, teach that IQ differed by race genetically and basically black people were at the bottom. And I was just like (laughs) losing my mind in that space. And were you angry at all that you had been put in this school? I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My mother (laughs) can tell you (laughs) she was like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Um, Well, she didn't say that at the time, but I I came home angry. She felt my anger. She knew I was very angry for being transferred. I wanted to go to back to my other school where it was more mixed um, and racially diverse, in part because of busing as a way of desegregation, because there was still a lot of segregation based off of like neighborhood, which is how people determine which school you go to. But I was very angry and upset. And I was just like, the way I'm going to do something about it, I'm going to be a teacher and I'm going to do better than this psychology teacher who taught me this BS. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to study, you know, things concerning like race and politics and I'm going to bring that into the classroom so that my students don't get the kind of education that I had you know like I had a history teacher tell me oh you know not all black people hated slavery and some people were really friends with their masters and so it was just things like that um so I went to college thinking I was going to be a teacher then 
I learned about systemic racism. I learned about feminism. I learned about intersectionality and the ways in which there are systems and structures that allow oppression to perpetuate. Um, And so education was kind of my inroad. So I went in thinking I was going to work in the classroom. Then I thought about education policy. Then I'm just thinking about policy overall. So in college, you know, I went to Gallatin, the School of Individualized Study at NYU. So I designed my own major and I really focused on public policy and knowledge production. So how do we come to know things whose knowledge is legitimate, whose is not? So, for example, you know, a person who is on public assistance versus a person who did research on public assistance, you know, the person with direct experience is not necessarily the person that will be the go to for policymakers in terms of thinking about how do we make these programs better? How can we be doing better with how we are assisting people who are in poverty? They'll go to the person who wrote the book, uh, who uh, studied it in school, who may not have direct experience with this issue. And so I was very concerned with how do we make sure that the people most impacted are sitting at the table and are helping to shape these things so that uh, the decisions that are made really help uh, the folks that it's intended to you know, work for. So, and you've yeah. ended up doing a lot of work around that. It I seems did. Like you've, uh, you're doing that residency right now with the Department of Health, mm-hmm. and you've done work around birth and reproductive rights and issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, reproductive justice, racial justice, economic justice have been movement building spaces that I've been a part of through working with and for the government, um, both local and national working with nonprofit spaces, working in community-based organizations um, and local groups, doing student organizing. Like one of my big politicized moments in college was going to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina Mm -hmm. through an initiative called Katrina on the Ground. And it was an opportunity for students of color, namely black students, to come down and volunteer. And it was organized by local organizations who saw a lot of white volunteers and wanted to bring down black students to witness and see what was happening as well as to help and support. So in addition to volunteering, um, we also had these like moments after it was all said, like at the end of the day after dinner, opportunities to understand our experience, to have uh, someone locally facilitate a conversation about what we witnessed, why we witnessed it. And before we even started volunteering, they had us, they took us around to show us the destruction of what happened when the levees broke and how it was racialized in terms of Hmm. who was impacted and who wasn't. Yeah. Experiences like that um, really shaped and molded me um, between high school and college. And in college, I was really seeking it out. You know, I joined the Malcolm X grassroots movement project. Um, I also uh, was just a part of different uh, internships and things locally. That's what I love about New York. There was just, the city was like my playground and there was so much opportunity to learn more about, you know, what does it mean to do community organizing? What does it mean to do public policy that is responsive and inclusive of the communities that we care about around a number of issues that I was really invested in reproductive justice, racial justice, economic justice. So, you know, before I self-identified as an artist, I was an activist, Mm. a person who was like my life force, my energy, which includes my career will be dedicated to creating some sort of meaningful and impactful change. And so 
kind of moving into being an artist, it's like that's kind of followed me. So I didn't study art in school. In fact, I shied away from it. There were some classes I wanted to take, but I was like, no, Tasha, you can't take those. Like, how is that going to further your goals? Right. I was, I'm a little type A sometimes, so <laughs> overprepared. <laughs> Focused. Yeah. yeah. But when I look back on my life, I realize I've been an artist my whole life. Mm. My whole entire life, I've been an artist. I've danced. I've enjoyed creating stories. I, my godbrothers and I had a rap group when we were younger. We took ourselves very seriously. We rehearsed, we wrote our own lyrics. We performed at all the family functions. Um, I was on a step team in college. Like there's so many ways in which I was creatively expressing myself, but it wasn't until like after college, like 2012, really that I start to identify as an artist. When did that first occur to you? I wonder like, well, after, um, I graduated from college, I gave myself the space to explore my creativity. So Mm. I bought these books on how to draw, how to paint. And I just followed my curiosity. I just did whatever I was interested in. And so that led me down many paths. I started making jewelry, which I still do now through Mm -hmm. color girls hustle. I took a workshop around performance. Mm. Um, I was just exploring, exploring, exploring. And it was at a time when I was working a job, you know, a movement job. Um, That's what we call, you know, these full-time opportunities to do movement building work. So I had a movement job at a nonprofit organization that did direct action, grassroots organizing. And I was feeling burnt out. I was feeling dissatisfied with my work. I was feeling like I didn't have enough work-life balance. I was commuting an hour each way to work with a minimum requirement of 45 hours a week. Like that was in my contract, you know? Um, So basically my whole life revolved around my job and I was just feeling stifled and stuck, especially when dealing with conflict with other coworkers and, you know, just regular office drama, like movement building work is not separate from that. You know, when it's professionalized in a nonprofit space, there's still supervisors and coworkers and, you know, the things that happen at work. And so it was really weighing on me. If I wasn't at work, I was talking about it. And my creativity was really an outlet for me to find other things to care about besides what was happening at my job. Um, And ways to explore myself, because a lot of how I was kind of trained to be and what I witnessed is, you know, being a part of movement building work, it meant being self-sacrificing. It meant not paying attention to all of your needs. It meant not always prioritizing your desires and your wants um, for the greater good. And I just sacrificing yourself. Yeah. As a person invested in like healing justice work now. You know, I can look back on my younger self and be like, oh, you know, that there were a number of things um, I could have been doing differently to just have the balance or facilitate inside of my organization to be like, hey, y'all, let's consider these things so we can be whole people and not just um, servants to the work. And I think, you know, in order to show up fully inside of being of service, we have to be whole. We have to be well. We have to be okay. If the work is driving us into the ground, then it really defeats the purpose because the folks who are typically on the front lines uh, usually look like the communities that they're working with and serving. And so it's like you're you're doing uh, <laughs> you're doing yourself a disservice by like cutting your life short mm, um, yeah. by not taking care of yourself, you know, so by not taking care of myself, I was 
I was just at my breaking point. Um, and my creative curiosity was what was holding me together. Um, it made me feel alive. I just had a renewed sense of like interest in something. You know, I really came to activism through reacting to circumstances and conditions that I was dealing with, seeing things that I was not okay with. Um, and I just felt very passionate and, uh, working in a job where I felt burnt out, where I didn't always feel, appreciated or compensated well for my time in labor where I felt just tension with other people I was working with it just you know it was really wearing on me and that sense of passion just you know wasn't alive in me like it's the flame is still there but it was kind of burning me up in a way <laughs> yeah and maybe you weren't having the impact you wanted or maybe yeah. making the change well I still think I did a good job yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I'm sure you did <laughs> yeah but I was I just wasn't so my creativity just like reignited you know my passion and um just like I was just feeling very excited to explore Hmm. and learn kind of like how I felt in college, you know, when I was like really excited to absorb all this new information. And so my artwork kind of, it was like my healing practice in a way, you know, like it is what allowed me to return to myself. Hmm. A book that I got in the process of getting into my curiosity and following my, um, my whims and desires, uh, I came across Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. Yeah. And that book really shifted a lot of things for me to the point where I ended up quitting my job. Mm. I was like, I, I, I have to go. And it was challenging because it was like, well, is quitting my job meaning that I'm no longer being an activist? You know, because this is where I was activating that part of myself was like in this nonprofit job doing um I started doing policy work and then I ended up doing some grassroots fundraising stuff like the front lines right yeah yeah and I was like okay so what does this mean but then I was in a place of like being okay with the question you know like figuring it out not having all the answers because like I mentioned before in college I was very much like what does this have to do with my future I can only do it if it has to do with this not giving myself an opportunity to just kind of follow and see what happens Mm. so when I quit my job it was like let me see what happens Um, my mother was nervous (laughs) (laughs) she's like so are you gonna look for a job are you you probably should do that soon I was just like well I think I'm okay you know I have some savings I have some unemployment insurance like so technically I didn't quit but you know my contract ended so there were ways for me to um, figure out my next steps. And I just did a deep dive into my creative practice. And it was in that moment, working with Julia Cameron's The Artist Way, being removed from something I was so immersed in, refiguring out my path that I began to identify as an artist. Mm-hmm. And probably noticing a lot of things that you hadn't noticed when you were kind of in that job, like that oh, were yeah. affecting you negatively. Or Oh, yeah. My friends were like, oh, you're so much nicer now. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, was I mean before? Like, oh, you're just so much more peaceful now. It it, it, that job really was impacting me in a way that in ways that I both understood and then later came to understand. Right. And so my creativity was part of how I was finding my way back to myself and also learning myself as well as creating myself. And I was just doing a deep dive into the infinite possibilities of my life. And 
I was like, you know, I really want to, I want to be an artist. I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm still committed to all of the things that brought me to that organization that brought me to my studies in school. And I'll figure out how it all works together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I didn't have it figured out when I, you know, started on that path. And this is like 2012, but I was committed to figuring out how it would work. And I was really convicted. Like I had this sense of conviction, like this will unfold the way it needs to and I'll be able to do everything I want to do I'll be able to show up in the world in all the ways that I'd like to and so it must have been comforting yeah well sort of it's a little unsettling (laughs) especially as a person who's always planning always creating a list always you know I keep a paper calendar yeah um so it was a new way of being uh and I won't say that it was always calming or comfortable um but it did require me to create practices to Uh, support me in moving through my beyond my comfort zone. So I this is when I started meditating, I started journaling, because artist way requires you to morning pages. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I just started doing a number of things altar building in my home, Mm. um, just creating sacred space and time for myself to sit in self reflection and consider, you know, what it is I wanted to create for myself. And it's so interesting going back and reading 2012 Taja uh, oh, journals. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, girl, it's, it's going to be okay. Relax. Oh. Relax. And if I, yeah, could tell myself then what I know now, it's just like it, it all does kind of work out. Because I was worried. I was afraid. I was scared. But performance actually has been my courage ritual in a way performance I feel like teaches me to confront things that I think I may not have to otherwise like there's just a certain level of self-expression audacity and just self-assuredness that's required to get in front of people and tell your story um, through movement through words through whatever yeah Um, and like we were talking about before we started recording it's it could be cathartic yeah, and healing. Absolutely. And, and that's what I loved about performance. So I started with, uh, I, I realized in my life, like, oh, you've always performed. But as a quote unquote artist, self-identified artist, I came to performance through a ensemble called Body Ecology. And it was a black women's performance ensemble led by Ebony Noel Golden, who facilitated um, and created space for us to create. And it was in that space that I realized that I am enough. Because mm. when I was invited to be a part of body ecology, you know, originally they had invited me to have a conversation about reproductive justice because they wanted to do some direct action, cultural art organizing around reproductive justice. And so I came in to kind of share what I knew about organizations and people and issues and information. And that led to an invitation to be a part of the group, the ensemble. And I was like, are you sure you want to invite me to this? Because, you know, I haven't studied performance. (laughs) I didn't like take this up in college. Like I just, this is not something that I like have a practice or expertise in. And I remember Ebony being like, you know, that's okay. (laughs) Not everyone here has that. Some people do, and it's a tool, but like we will work together. You know, you just sharing yourself and your story is enough. And so that really changed the game for me. It was like, oh, Mm -hmm. I can 
be an artist and not be formally trained in a way that we think a quote unquote artist might. And there is training, right? Like there is learning, there is discipline and rigor with like study and building skill, but it wasn't done in the four walls of an academy, of a university or in a college. And I think that's also why I grappled with the term artist because I was considering what does it mean to take on that identity if I didn't study to be this thing, you know, yeah, like feeling like an imposter or something. Yeah. Kind of. But what I got from Julia Cameron and also from body ecology is that, you know, we are all animated with creative spirit and everyone can create. And quite frankly, everyone's an artist. If we want to like really break it down, you yeah. know, life is the canvas or, you know, other things can be your canvas, but um, ultimately we all have that creative energy. And so body ecology gave me an additional space to tap into it and tune into it. Cause I was already kind of exploring on my own and following my own inclinations and curiosities. What did um, that look like um, on your own painting, mostly with acrylic collaging, drawing, and making earrings. That's really where it all started. But not movement as much. No, not movement. I wasn't thinking of performance as my practice, which is so interesting because I was on a step team in college. I coached step teams in high for high school students and middle school students, like coach them on how to perform. But I wasn't thinking about that as like my practice until I was a part of this space. Um, Because step um, as an art form is something I had skill in. It's something I had studied through a club on campus, not like a class, but it was something I had steeped myself inside of. And so I was like, oh, this ritual performance. I don't know anything about that. Like, I don't, can I be a part of this? Are you sure? (laughs) Um, And so body ecology was really my training ground for like my current aesthetic and approach to my work. We were all black women sharing our stories, writing, creating movement. The folks who were in our group, like we would create devising prompts for each other and then pull what was inside of that and build Mm. off of that. Like it was a very, in some ways it was facilitated, but there was also just an organic way in which we developed content and it also came through sisterhood like we were friends we hung out we spent time checking in about our day and how we were doing before we got to devising it was all part of the process even altar making and what like ritual like creating intentional acts to facilitate people and spirit like I learned a lot of that through my body ecology time Hmm, what a rich time I mean that must must look on that so fondly now I mean it was so much fun (laughs) it was fun you know and also working with a group there's also stress and (laughs) natural things but it was a it was a formative time and I developed some really beautiful friendships through that and I learned a lot about myself in that process. And while being a part of body ecology, you know, Ebony facilitated this workshop in the Bronx at a space that's no longer called Casa Adebec Sachet. It was like a community space that we used for all different kinds of events, um, healing rituals and gatherings. And she was teaching this multi-week course on performance and had recommended that I participate you know, as a member of body ecology, like, you know, be a part of this so you can get some information and tools to continue being a part of this uh, ensemble space. 
And so I was able to do even more deep dive and understanding of a bunch of things. So Ntozaki Shange, who wrote for color girls who've considered suicide when the rainbow's not enough, um, created kind of a blueprint for us in terms of nonlinear storytelling, um, the choreo poem, you know, what it means for us to do that storytelling in poetic ways where we echo each other in relationship to each other. Ebony, I think, calls it like choreopoetic aesthetics. I'm not sure if she had coined that or someone else did, but just understanding how to move together in that particular way. Yeah, I just learned so much and I created a piece at the end of it. There was like a culminating performance. I created a piece about um, some childhood trauma that I had experienced and It was in that performance that I really understood for myself the healing power of performance because I literally felt something leave my body Mm. and other people felt it too. And I was like, oh, we're not we're not playing around here. Like there there are literal things that live inside of our flesh and our body that impact us. And, you know, I'm an energy healer. I'm also a Reiki practitioner. So um, at the time I wasn't, but I understand now how those things that are unaddressed when they're in our bodies, like they can fester, you know, and just impact us emotionally, physically and spiritually. And I was so grateful that I had a performance ritual opportunity to release something that was like really festering inside of me. Mm. And I didn't even know it was so I didn't even know until it was released how it was like in me like that, you know, and it was yeah, it was just really incredible. It's hard to explain. I'm trying to figure out like what are the words to explain that performance, but there were chairs. <laughs> there was a soundscape that I made. I threw the chairs around. It was it was all about transforming um, myself in this moment. And I just I got that at the end. I really don't know how to describe mm. it except to say that I just understood this the somatic healing power of performance then, and it just made me so enthusiastic about what else could be possible through performance. And that was my first solo work. Wow. (laughs) That was my first time I did something solo and it was deep. It brought people to tears. Um, I think I might have a habit of doing that (laughs) in my work, but it was, yeah, it was deep. And I think people felt connected, not, they might have similar stories, but I think when people, when I, bear myself on stage it just offers an it offers an opportunity for connection people see something from their childhood or their family or something inside of that moment too and so it's not just oh I'm having this cathartic healing experience in front of people Mm, but that I'm having it with people um and I think that's really important because I'm not trying to like use an audience as like some pseudo like group therapy session for me to work through my shit, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's like, what can, what can me telling this story, not only offer myself, but also offer and gift to the people who are in this room. And that's really my approach um, to my work now is thinking about how is this a healing ritual for myself and for everyone who showed up um, to be a part of this, um, to witness and experience because yeah, we're all in it. And when we're talking about matters of spirit, like we're not just, 
you know, getting on stage and doing a tap dance. Like this is a, uh, an exchange that's happening here. And so also figuring out how to do that responsibly. I also learned through my time yeah. with body ecology because we were <laughs> so funny body ecology, my training ground and performance, we were doing public performance to start. It wasn't in a theater space. It wasn't in four walls. Like it was outside outdoors. The first, uh, we had ring shouts for reproductive justice is what we called our public performances at the time. And we did one in front of the Harriet Tubman uh, Memorial in Harlem. We did one in front of the J. Marion Sims Memorial, also in Harlem, East Harlem. And for anyone who doesn't know, J. Marion Sims is like considered the godfather of gynecology. And essentially, he perfected techniques on the bodies of um, enslaved black women without providing any anesthesia, even though it was available at the time. Literally vaginal surgeries without anesthesia so he could perfect practices that support modern gynecology. So, and he's revered godfather of gynecology. Anyway, so we did a public performance in front of um, his statue, which is no longer in East Harlem, but at the time it was. So that was really my training ground, you know, like performing outside in front of people. That is freaking nerve wracking. Mm. That is, it's like, we don't have the safety of, you know, uh, a room. Anything can happen on the street. Anyone can walk by, can have an interaction we didn't plan for. Like all types of things can happen. There's no lights. There's no sound cue. There's no, there's all of that is stripped down. It was just like five black women outside (laughs) performing. We told people we would be there. So like folks came, but you know, that's, that's where I learned how to be inside of my performance in the way in which that I'm in it now. That was like one of, I have several milestone moments in my career trajectory. And that was like, that was a big one for me. Mm. So I learned a lot there, you know, being in a group space, there's, but so much that you do inside of a group. Like I had inclinations and desires for performance that didn't necessarily resonate with everyone. So I began to explore, well, what would it mean for me to do some solo work? So I began to research and investigate and apply to different opportunities. Um, I did the Brown Girl Burlesque Broad Squad Institute, which was an opportunity to learn burlesque. I was going to ask you about burlesque. Yeah, let's get to it. We're, <laughs> yeah, we're there. Tell me about that. Because <laughs> that is another thing that you have listed on your website as yes. something that uh, you do. So I was wondering yeah. about that. Brown Girls Burlesque was such... 2013, the class of summer 2013 BSI (laughs) will always go down in history as the most epic, like, class ever for Broncos. I'm just going to claim it right now. Um, Our teacher was Miss Aurora Bubrialis, and she led us through a six-week course where we learned the art of burlesque and also some history too. So BGB was a space for women of color. A lot of burlesque spaces, like many places, can feel very dominated by white people. Mm -hmm. And so the BSI, the Broad Squad Institute, provided an environment for women of color only to explore this art form um, together in the context of the history of women of color's contributions to burlesque. It also gave us an opportunity to talk about and deconstruct the ways in which our bodies are policed, 
legislated, publicly discussed, especially our sexuality, our sexual self-expression, whether it's demonized or fetishized, like we got to break all of that down in the context of a workshop where we had the opportunity to embody our sexuality and sensuality on our own terms. It was powerful. Mm. It was intergenerational. We had an elder or two with us. Like people were very creative and committed and in the room for different reasons. Not everyone wanted to be a burlesque artist afterwards. You know, like I'm now going to be on stage. For some people, it was just about moving through blocks and self-expression, wanting to be more sensual, more sexual, exploring that side of themselves to be more sexy for themselves or for their partner. Um, For myself and a few other people, We were really interested in what burlesque had to offer in terms of self-possession of our body, autonomy over our body, our ability to be in just the fullness of ourselves for ourselves um, and to integrate that into other performance art practices. So I didn't go into BSI thinking like, I'm going to be a burlesque artist after this. I went in thinking, I want, there's something here for me that will support what I'm doing in performance. And I don't know what it is yet, but I'm attracted to it. I'm following my curiosity. Let me explore it and see what happens. And it was a wild graduation show. People were talking to me about my piece like weeks after. (laughs) So in burlesque, we we asked our we asked our teacher. We were like, "So how long is a burlesque piece supposed to be?" She said, three to ten minutes." What she didn't tell us was that six to ten minutes is like the time frame for a headliner, like someone who's paid the big bucks to close the festival or the event. And three to six minutes is typically what a regular act will be. Everyone in my class did like ten minute acts. <laughs> everyone did a 10 minute act that had all of these like stories and trajectories like we were in wow cafe theater um which is like a collective theater in new york city historical space that people should definitely look up it had no ac it was like july in new york city it was hot but the room was packed and everyone stayed for the whole show the energy was just so good like we were all so committed to creating something that encapsulated what we had gotten out of our experience and what we wanted to share. And my piece was basically, someone called it like a dissertation on black women's sexuality in (laughs) the United States. It was a collage of like over 30 songs, Mm. took people on a journey. It was a whole thing. I will never perform that act again. Um, It is retired. (laughs) though it might influence some future acts but it was uh yeah just a really beautiful experience that had me be more comfortable in my body and sharing myself with people Mm. which is what I think performance asks of us right it asks us to if if we're doing it right because you know some people show up to performance in different ways but for me performance asks me to show up so fully and authentically and I won't say fearlessly but I have to really step through any kind of like blockages that I have in order to be that present with myself and people. And burlesque was just like another layer of that. It just taught me how to bear myself to folks. Mm. And it's not just a physical stripping of clothes. Like it's like really sharing yourself to be Mm -hmm. a black woman 
on stage in America naked <laughs> is it's a thing. It's a thing. And to not be ashamed about it, you know, and to not let other people make me feel ashamed about it and to stand in my power and in my dignity while doing it and to share a story, you know, about myself through that art form. Like it was just amazing. Burlesque has taught me so much and people in burlesque have taught me a lot too. Uh, One of my mentors, uh, Pearl Noir, she talks about like how to strip and not be obvious about it. Like it's not just I'm gonna peel this glove, then I'm gonna take off this corset. And it's like, how am I literally peeling back the layers so you can see me, you can see mm. me, you can see me. And so burlesque is more than just like a strip tease. You know, it's it is a framework that I look at my artwork with. So the concept of the reveal, you know, because burlesque, A lot of burlesque, especially if it focuses on the striptease, is about the reveal. You know, what are you revealing? I'm revealing this thing. I'm revealing this thing next. Like, what's next? And in my show, it's like peeling back the layers. More and more that gets revealed. And it's not about me necessarily taking off clothes, which I do in my performance work. But it's like, how can we take take a deeper look at this thing that we're investigating. Um, how do I not give it all away from the top of the show? Like, how do I lead you through a process where it all gets unearthed at the end? Because at the end of my work, we literally do, I have everyone in the room opening bags and taking out bags and balloons and papers that have the names of um, unarmed black people that have been killed by the police, the names and the faces, their faces are there too. So the concept of the reveal, you know, there is a reveal that happens at the end. The bag lady comes out at the end. She is revealed. So burlesque really is means so much to me and in, in, in ways that are not super obvious, you know, um, even making a costume. I make all of, I've made all of my costumes with the exception of my current headdress. I did commission a burlesque artist, um, Amber Ray, to help me make it more decadent. But most of my costumes are made by me. And that has been inspired in part by my craftiness, yeah. <laughs> um, but also by burlesque um, teachers like, you know, Chikava, who did like a workshop with us about how to, um, she's part of Brown Girls Burlesque, um, how to like, you know, fasten and do different things with your outfit to make it easy to take on and off. And, you know, just all these considerations that go into a costume, not just how to make it, but also how to move in it. Because in burlesque, you're having a conversation with your garment, you're having a conversation with your props. Um, It is an extension of you and you have to have mastery over it and how to use it in order to have that, uh, conversation and performance and what's interesting is you know when I made a choice to really hone in on trash bags it was really about having a conversation with the material you know like we're in a dance together how I move in it how I manipulate it how I create with it um what it means to people yeah generally you mm-hmm. know typically what a trash bag means right playing with all it, of that yeah has been informed by burlesque so burlesque is like a practice and not just a genre for mm-hmm. me. So yeah. And I also do straight up burlesque acts too. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. It doesn't all have to do with like, you know, deconstructing it sometimes, you know, I just like to strip too. And that's fun. And I enjoy it. And I think my joy is also just as important as my 
sadness, my sorrow, my grief, and my trauma that I share on stage. Like I'm also sharing joy too. I was listening to your podcast with Sharon and I really liked something that she said about joy being the evidence of spirit. And I really resonated with that. You know, when I think about that in conversation with my burlesque, it's like, you know, my work, I am at the intersection of art and activism, but that doesn't mean everything is like explicitly like rah, rah, rail against this thing. You know, it's, it's also political for a black queer woman to experience and embody joy on stage and be in total self-possession of her body. That is a political act too. And I feel really alive doing burlesque. Like I really enjoy it for its own sake, even if I'm not doing a piece that makes people cry or is about some, you know, tragedy or whatever it's. And yeah, that's a part of my work too. So, and I'm actually creating new burlesque acts this, this year. Um, and I'm really excited about it. And I kind of need it after touring the Bag Lady Manifesto. I'm like, this shit is deep. I need like <laughs> something that allows me to be in a different part of my self-expression, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Maybe that would be a good point where we could just transition to talking about the future. Okay. Because I feel like... Did, do you feel like there's anything else we should talk about? Because we're at an hour. I know. Nine. <laughs> Listen, I like to talk. I was yeah. like, this might be a long one. Um, well, a couple of other milestone things I'd say about yeah, I was gonna ask you my about work is doing Emerge NYC at the Hemispheric Institute at NYU. Um, it was not an extension of like my studies. It's a program that artists, activists can apply to. And we have an opportunity to do a deep dive into our creative practice and process by constantly being asked to create. Like we have facilitators come in. It was like we met weekly, like every Saturday for like four to six hours. And we just had to create, 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 Mm. create. And that's where I started the bag lady work. We had to do a public performance on the theme of free. And I thought about Erica Badu's version of the bag lady, like I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I started working with trash bags was in Emerge. That program was by far one of the best things that I've ever done. It was a turning point in my art career, having an art career. It, I tapped into something that I'm still working with today. And that was 2014. So this bag lady work has mm. been is five years deep now. Yeah. yeah. So I created like a public performance, um, being a public spectacle, embodying Erica Badu's version of a bag lady, like what it looks like when you're holding on to things that no longer serve you. And in our graduation performance where we were able to do work in progress, I developed that idea further, created like a monologue and some like other movements and interactions. And, you know, that piece actually lives in the performance that I did at Fusebox. So there were these, that was called The Rain. The Rain I did in Emerge as a graduation performance. Then came this ain't a eulogy that was inspired by my time with my students who had me reconsider who the bag lady was. And then I decided to create a burlesque piece with trash bags. And for my 30th birthday, I put those three pieces together and did a work in progress version of what is now known as the bag lady manifesto. Yeah, Emerge was a really pivotal moment for me um, in terms of creating this body of work. It is where the bag lady got her start. Um, And I love that. Yeah, many of the intentions and 
moments that I put in that in that first in that first iteration live on. And that's also a thing I'd like to see too is that my work is iterative. You know, it's not and now we're done. I kind of did that to go on tour, but it's like here is here is a moment of completion, but like I really feel like there's more to uncover with the bag lady. There is so much else that I can do with her and that I'm hoping to do with her, um, discover and uncover with her. So I feel like I'm still kind of at the beginning. Mm. I'm still at the beginning. We're five years in, but I'm still at the beginning. But what I'm okay with now is like, okay, I've given her my undivided creative attention for the last few years. And so this year I was taking a moment to be like, okay, let me take a step back and see what other things do I want to create while simultaneously moving this project along? So burlesque acts are in the works. I'm also working, you had mentioned briefly, uh, just a little bit more context, the residency that I have now. Yeah, yeah I would love to hear about that. Yeah, so I'm going to be working, well, not going to be, I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been selected to be a public artist in residence with the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. And Public Artists in Residence, or PAIR for short, is a program conceived, facilitated by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, where they're pairing artists with city agencies to be creative problem solvers. And what's so interesting is I learned that the city agencies have to apply to have an artist. Mm. So it's not like the Department of Cultural Affairs is like, please, please, please take an artist. You know, we really want them to do this work. Yeah, but like, like, oh, great, an artist. <laughs> <laughs> right. They actually have to think about, oh, uh, we're interested in an artist. What might an artist do? Um, but also to be open to like, well, we might have an idea, but the artist might do something different. So uh, the city health department applied to have an artist in residence to work on birth equity in New York City. We have some really egregious uh, health disparities. And black women are way more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Um, and it's unacceptable. And what the city health department has acknowledged is that racism has a hand in that and we need to address it. And it's going to take creative solutions to address longstanding problems. So it makes sense for an artist who is in conversation with creativity and imagination to be uh, connected in this way um, to yeah. support with this. And so I'm super excited to support in thinking about um, how do we eradicate racism? <laughs> how do we eradicate yeah. racism in healthcare? Yeah, you know, my I'm, I got a really great um, supportive uh, response from my community for having the residency. And it was really overwhelming. I was like, wow, the things people said I'm so glad you got it. It's perfect that it's you, you know, these things. And I really received them with so much grace. And I was also like, oh, it's a lot of pressure. We got to do something good with this 12 month residency. I want to make sure that something meaningful and significant comes out of my time. Yeah, of course. Um, but then I'm also aware, like, you know, 12 months versus centuries of oppression. It's like <laughs> the odds are yeah, a little Don't <laughs> put too much pressure on yourself. Right. I um, like the uh, New York Times article about this that it said artists as creative problem solvers. Yeah. You know, I feel like there needs to be a lot more of that. Yeah. And we 
have a lot to offer. And you know, what's so interesting too, I've been working with the city health department as a consultant for like a few years. I supported with facilitating a process that created what is now known as the New York City Standards for Respectful Care at Birth. So when this call for artists to apply came out, I was just like, oh, this is so perfect. Like I can bring what I've been grappling with as a consultant. You know, I can be able to grapple with this now as an artist first. Like I am whoever I am in whatever room I'm in. But to lead with being an artist inside of this body of work like that was so exciting to me because to date I felt like, you know, I even though I left my nonprofit job and I took a step back, I'm still actively a part of movement building spaces. I still support them, you know, through healing justice workshops and also being connected because my artwork is especially the Saint Eulogy and the Bag Lady Manifesto. Like these are connected to active, vibrant uh, movement spaces. So it's like I'm still I'm still in the cipher, but sometimes it's been hard to find my place as an artist in movement building work when it's like the ways in which to be involved don't always explicitly solicit my creativity or my art. Yeah. You know what I mean? I kind of insert that. So I kind of feel like sometimes I'm at conferences and spaces like I kind of sneak in the art part. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and I think more and more now people are interested in this conversation of the intersection of art and culture with social movements. And it's art and culture have always been a part of social movements. I just want to be clear about that. But in terms of being strategically like being strategic with artists inside of campaigns and uh, things that we're trying to move forward. Uh, There's a really rich conversation that's happening now. So it's just really exciting to be in a space where I can be both and Mm because it has felt separate, you know, like I needed to leave my job in order to be an artist and then trying to come back into movement building work as an artist and not always feeling understood, like, okay, so you're here, but like, you know, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think the name of my book is going to be Beyond Flyers and Fundraisers. <laughs> <laughs> like, we could do more than design the logo or the flyer or perform at the gala. Like, there's something about being in tune with your imagination and your creativity that allows for um, just some creative thinking that I think can support what it is that we all want to move forward, which is a more equitable world for us all. So, I'm really excited to do this residency with the understanding that I get to lead with I am an artist yeah. versus sneaking it in later. Yeah, and the, and what I was thinking was uh what I was thinking about this was you could literally save lives. I mean, it's like life and death, right? It is. People are literally dying by doing a thing that we've been doing since the beginning of time, you know, giving birth and there is no reason why with all of our medical professionals, knowledge and information that that has to be the case, but there's work to be done. And I'm really hoping that what I am able to co-create with the city health department and with community does in fact help to save lives, you know, like having a very tangible impact. Like I don't want to just make work about racism, Like, I want to move the needle on the issue through the project. And so that's going to be the work to figure out, like, how how does that happen? I mean, obviously, it will be about 
the topic, but how do we use catalyze that that viewpoint, that understanding and that gaze and that looking at the the problem? How does that how can we then shift the problem and not just talk about it? Yeah, um, which is ultimately my goal in all of my work. Right. You know? I was just going to say. It's like I really this whole activate. What are we going to do and how can we get results? Extraordinary results. Yeah. Um, so that's that's my task. <laughs> that's my no task. Small thing, but. Yeah. And I'm yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. I feel confident that something beautiful will come out of this. And I'm really hoping that there will be support to continue the work beyond 12 months, because I do think it will require time to make significant impact, but I'm going to do all that I can with the resources that um, I'll be given through this opportunity. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. It's a great work to be doing as an artist, I think. And it's a perfect, uh, like you said, juncture of a lot of different things that you've been doing throughout your life. So best of luck with that. Thank you so much. (laughs) And thank you so much for your time and, for uh, being on my podcast and sharing everything that you did about your life and your work. Thank you. I'm so excited to share it. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you, and take care.